episode, I speak with advocate, author, and political scientist who is also the founder and president of the NewAmericanLeaders.org, Sayu Bushwani. Key points addressed were Sayu's ambitious professional story, beginning with the analysis and implementation of immigration issues following 9-11. We also unpack the goal of thenewamericanleaders.org and its efforts to shine transparency and applicability on the process of running for political office for first and second generation immigrants and individuals that identify with these communities. We also briefly explored her book titled People Like Us, The New Wave of Candidates Knocking at Democracy's Door. Stay tuned for my fascinating talk with Sayu Boshwani. My name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series contains interviews I conduct with women, female-identified, and non-binary individuals regarding their professional stories and personal narrative. This podcast is designed to hold a space for all individuals to learn from their counterparts regardless of age, status, or industry. We aim to contribute to the evolving global dialogue surrounding underrepresented figures in all industries across the USA and abroad. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to check out our subsequent series that dive deep into specific areas such as vegan life, fasting, and roundtable topics. They can be found via our website, patriciacathleen.com, where you can also join our newsletter. You can also subscribe to all of our series on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. everyone and welcome back. I am your host Patricia and today I'm delighted to be sitting down with Sayu Bojwani. Sayu is an advocate, author, and political scientist. She is also the founder and president at American Leaders. You can find out more on both the websites, Sayu Bojwani, um, as well as newamericanleaders.org. That's S-A-Y-U-B-H-O jwani.com, as well as www.newamericanleaders.org. Welcome, Sayu. Hi, it's great to be here. Hi, I'm excited to have you as well. I can't wait to unpack everything that you're doing. For everyone listening, I will offer a quick bio on Sayu, but before I do that, I wanted to um, proffer up a roadmap for today's podcast in which our line of inquiry will base its trajectory. It's going to follow that of all of those in this series. Namely, we'll look at Sayu's academic and personal background and her narrative leading to um, what is her career and story now. And then we'll turn to unpacking her career and we'll look at the work that she's doing um, with her advocacy, uh, with new American leaders, as well as unpack the core tenets and the philosophy, the ethos um, in which her book is based um, the, her book title is People Like Us, The New Wave of Candidates Knocking at Democracy's Door, and I had the pleasure of going through it. I'm, uh, I'm really taken with a lot of the points of it, so you and I were talking off the record, and um, I think that uh, the hope and the basis of some of the book is, is really moving as well, but we will unpack that. Then we'll turn to goals that Sayu has for um, her the next one to three years for all of her work, and We'll wrap everything up with advice that she has for those of you that are looking to get involved or perhaps emulate some of her career's trajectory and success. Um, really quickly, before I start peppering her with questions, a quick bio. Um, Sayu Bojwani is a political scientist and um, author and outspoken advocate for shaking up the status quo in our democracy. In 2019, CQ Roll Call named her one of the three people outside the Beltway to watch. Since 2010, she has served as the founder and president of New American Leaders. In that capacity, she has recruited, coached, and supported 
over 50 first and second generation Americans who now serve in local, state, or federal office. A proven expert on diversity and democracy, she gave a wildly viewed TED Talk on immigrants' critical role in our democracy. In 2018, her first book, People Like Us, The New Wave of Candidates Knocking at Democracy's Door, was published by the New Press. A proud immigrant New Yorker, she also served as New York City's first commissioner of immigrant affairs from 2002 to 2004. So, Sayu, I'm really excited to kind of unpack. You've got um, a lot of different outreaches and you've done a, a lot of advocacy work and advisory roles. But before we get to everything that you're kind of entrenched in now, I'm hoping you can kind of unpack um, your personal narrative, your academic story and um, personal life that brought you to where you are right now. Sure. Well, that, that's a small question, but I'll see what I can, can do to it. But, but, you know, actually, they're all very intertwined. My immigration story, my academic journey, and what I do for work are, are actually deeply, deeply connected. Um, I think many people who move to the United States uh, think of that move as temporary. And I'm definitely one of those people. I came to the United States first as an international student uh, to get a college degree. I had been born in India and uh, grown up in Belize in Central America. And Belize is about a two hour flight from Miami. So many of us uh, who leave Belize to go to college end up somewhere in Florida because it's closer and the weather is similar to Belize. And so I ended up in Miami as a college student. And then I decided to go to grad school. Uh, and you know, I, I'll, I'll say briefly that I think a lot of my work now adds up um, what I did academically and what I'm doing professionally makes a lot of sense now but at the time I had no idea what I was doing and what basically happened as an international student is I, um, I was trying to save money so I took as many credits as I possibly could in one semester we had like at that time you paid one fee and you could take 12 credits or 18 credits. So of course I took 18 credits. So I finished college in two and a half years, which I do not recommend. Um, it's not because I was super smart. It was just because I was diligent and um, financially, you know, really in tune with what it was costing my parents to send me there. And then when I was done um, with my undergrad, it became clear that uh, in order to, what I wanted to do was teach. I thought I would teach for a little while in the United States and then go back to Belize and teach there. And so um, I started looking into teaching and I was told that I needed 30 credits in education um, courses. And it was just the same for me to get a master's versus to take 30 more credits. So I ended up coming to New York City um, and getting my master's from Teachers College uh, in English education. And then, as I explained, you know, my immigration journey is deeply tied to this. So in order to, in order to go from being a student on a student visa, we, some of us have been hearing in the United States right now about the student visa, you know, there was a ban on student visas um, if, you, um, if the colleges were going remote during the time of, of COVID. Um, I don't know when people are going to be listening to this podcast, so I'm situating it in this moment in July of 2020, the Trump administration said that students who were here um, on student visas would not be allowed to renew their visas if they could study remotely. So I was one of those people with a student visa, and in order to go from getting a 
from being a student to getting a job, you, um, you have to, uh, you have a certain period of time. I mean, I, I don't want to get into all the details, but basically you had to find a job. And the um, employers at that time, this was the 1980s, were really skittish and unaware about the details of immigration law. So although I was authorized to work in the United States, many employers were not going to employ me unless I had what's called a green card or was a citizen. And so I pivoted from being in education to being in publishing because I was able to get a job there and it um, reinforced my love of books um, and writing. And, um, and so, you know, that sort of was a, that pivot is important because it, it led to a lot of different steps that brought me to where I am today. But um, those were the first, the early years of my education were here in the United States as a college student and then as a graduate student. Um, and then the rest, as they say, is quite a storied and colorful history that I can get into more if you like. Yeah, and I like, you know, I've looked at other um, interviews and you speaking about things and you talk about um, this kind of really important first step in um, prior to um, 9-11 happening in and your first um, kind of job that you embarked on um, as serving as a, you know, an immigration representative. Can you speak a little bit to that? I think it parodies or parallels at least, um, you know, kind of what is happening recently and, and the writing of your book. There was this mirroring kind of effect that happened with this conversation. But so it's 2001 and um, you've just been appointed your first position. Can you kind of talk about what happened and, and what happened as you embarked from 2002 to 2004? Sure. Um, so I had, you know, eventually I became more involved um, and entrenched in the United States. Um, I started to become, I became a youth organizer, basically. Um, and that was, it was in the role that I had prior to becoming commissioner that I started to get connected to different networks in New York City. And so that's, you know, the political networks, the other nonprofits, the advocacy networks. And I mentioned that only because it was because I was within those networks that I was tapped to be commissioner of immigrant affairs. And, you know, for people who are thinking about the professional trajectory, um, very little happens coincidentally, right? It's usually that you um, have the right sort of, you're in the right place at the right time. And um, I also became a citizen finally in 2000. So I went through a number of different uh, status as an immigrant and then I became a citizen in 2000 I voted for the first time in 2001 and then uh, in that election uh, Mike Bloomberg was elected mayor of New York City in the aftermath of September 11 and a few months later I was tapped to be commissioner of immigrant affairs so I'm setting the context this is New York City about six months after September 11 uh, shortly after the attacks you know, many of our televisions were plastered with the uh, faces and names of men who looked like my father, my brothers, my boyfriend at the time, um, many of my friends. And so I was very much situated in the community that was being affected as a result of seeing people like us on the screen um, and having people like us be seen as foreign outsiders and a threat to the United States. At the same time, I was living in a city that felt that it had been, that it was under threat and that it had a lot of healing to do. People were hurting 
um, there was genuine fear and, and concern about um, the economy and about safety. And it's in that context that I became commissioner of Indian Affairs. Uh, and in that context, I became a kind of bridge between the communities I belong to by virtue of my ethnicity, but also by virtue of my shared immigration, right? So you don't have to be uh, an Indian American to understand what the struggle of coming to this country is. You don't have to be a Mexican American to understand what the struggle of, uh, you know, not having papers or not speaking the language is, right? And many of us have those struggles regardless of our background. So I, I as an immigrant, was um, the eyes and ears of the immigrant community within, within city government. But I was also helping folks in city government understand what it meant to be someone like me, uh, who, you know, I talk about this probably in some of what you've read, that when people, when we see, you know, a sheriff or an immigration officer or a police officer, we don't always know, I mean, even native born Americans don't always know the difference between what is a sheriff's role and what's a police role and what, what is the role of an immigration officer, right? And so there was mass confusion and there continues to be mass confusion. And that moment, as you said, is a parallel to the moment that we're in now in which people, every American um, or many Americans have a lot of concerns about their health, about their economic well-being, about the, their, their kids' education, um, and immigrants are just the same. But we have this added fear of our um, ability to stay in the United States based on who we are. And that was the role that I played in city government, is in helping to think about what was the policy response to the practical considerations that people had. So, and both things were true. We had concerns as a city, um, and then a subset of those city residents were immigrants, and they had sometimes different and overlapping concerns. And that was a role that I played, is sort of being able to disaggregate what could be done um, via policy, what could be done via practice, what could be done with additional resources, what could be done with education. Yeah, and I'm interested in that the action items and the utility behind, I mean, navigating that particular um, geography, you know, it sounds difficult enough, but after doing it uh, following 9-11, it sounds just um, kind of overly encumbered, you know, with, as you say, this kind of state of fear, you know, that the yeah. nation was in, but then also trying to come up with real actionable items. Um, first of all, as you talked about allocating them into areas of policy, education, um, I myself am always very concerned with um, utility and these action items, these kinds of real life things, you know, the, the theory out of law and put it into action and things of that nature. Do you have like core tenants that you've guided or that helped you and your team guide your structure by when you were dealing with implementation? How did you get to the place where you were actually dealing with actionable items? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, and I, I'm going to have to think a little bit because it was so long ago, but I think some of the things still happen in, in our lives, to, in my work today, right? So one thing that I think is um, just to frame some of this, like there is a tendency to think about um, particularly things related to immigration as if there is some black and white, like the rule of law versus breaking the law. Um, 
or you know get in line like there is no line um, the law is very murky you know there's many many different things so an example of that um, for example women who are victims of domestic violence um, who are living in a household that you know we might consider mixed status right so um, there were um, there are women who are reluctant to report an incident of domestic violence in their home because they're concerned that the primary breadwinner will be deported or that the father of their children will be deported, right? And so like, there, it's, a, it's a lot of gray area in there, you know? Um, and um, one of the things that we were dealing with in that period um, was around people whose relatives had died during the attacks of September 11th, who were now out of status from an immigration standpoint, because maybe it was their spouse um, who died. And suddenly, they, um, there's, these are just some examples. Like there's a visa that's called, I, I believe it's a U visa, that's for victims of crimes. And so there was a whole area of work that, that was not being led by us, but that we were part of, you know, with a law firm and some of these folks and trying to figure out what now would they do? Like if you're a father and you're, um, and the mother of your children died in the attacks, you the father and, and maybe the children are American citizens, but suddenly you the father don't have status because your visa was tied to your spouse who was working. You know, there, there are many of these kinds of situations. So um, to get, to give, be direct, more direct with your answer one, was sometimes we were simply uh, a door that was open to people who um, felt that we would understand or felt that I would understand because they knew me from another context, from another nonprofit or from, you know, uh, and, and, and so if you're new to this country, I mean, new could be 20 years, you know, you don't know how government works. Many of us don't know how government works. Um, so we, we were, one, we were a, an open door for people to come in and, and talk about the complaint um, or the concern they had, and then helping them to sort of say, well, you could go here or you could go there, or we can do this for you. Mm -hmm. um, the second way that we dealt with some things is that there are things that are not always the role of the mayor to fix. Sometimes it's the city council. In the case of New York, sometimes it's the city council that needs to move a policy along, right? And so then it was like also helping people think about, well, where, where was the appropriate venue for this policy? to be implemented, discussed and implemented. Um, sometimes it was about scaling back. And one of those is like, uh, you know, there was, um, there was a, a need, there is a need to have certain documents provided in translation so that more New York City residents can be aware of policies. And um, when, when I was there, we started with using, um, with providing translation for uh, in five languages to documents from certain agencies. Like we couldn't, the, the message was that we couldn't financially do it for every single agency, for every single language. And so how could you like create bite-sized responses? Um, and so that was it. And then there were many things we could do. We sadly were not able to move, you know, but it was about what was doable. Sometimes it was providing a listening gear at the end of the day, most people just want to be seen and heard. And that was something we did very well because we, I shared the lived experience of many of these folks, as did many of the staff who were working with me. We had a diverse staff of immigrants from other backgrounds. 
So they literally spoke the language and figuratively um, also spoke the language. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to zoom forward a little bit now and look at unpacking um, some of the work you're doing. And we can start with um, newamericanleaders.org. And um, for those, for people listening, um, can you walk us through, so beginning with some of the logistics, um, when was it founded? Did you have co-founders? What is it? Is it an advisory? Is it a coaching? What does the platform do? And um, yeah, a date, co-founders, if it was just you and the impetus for it. Sure. Well, so I'll start with the impetus because all of what I just described from being a commissioner really informed the decision to start this organization because it became very clear to me that there are many well-intentioned people, but if they don't share the lived experience of the people they're representing, it is just harder to create the right responses. And, you know, I say often that we will have the right policy when we have the right people making that policy. And that means different things to different people. But for us, it means having people who have the lived experience of immigrants and refugees and know what policy needs need to be uh, fulfilled for them. So that was the impetus. Um, in 2010, uh, I had a couple of people who I had worked with in different capacities, um, Mario Lugai and Nina Spensley, who are no longer actively involved with the organization. But um, they were important because I don't know if I would have done it again by myself. I had already started an organization on my own um, in the past, and we all were in a period of transition with our work, and so we sort of launched this. The early, now we describe New American Leaders as a political home for people who feel marginalized from our existing political structures, whatever, whether that's the local political party or um, mainstream institutions. At the time, it was very specifically to recruit and train immigrant leaders from nonprofit organizations and from the immigrant rights movement to run for office so that we would have their voices there. The organization has evolved and matured considerably, so that we are still doing that. We partner with local organizations to recruit people and help the, the training the training that we provide is a training that is, you know, I call it an asset-based training. It suggests to people that they already have what it takes to be a leader. I think women in particular struggle with that. They feel like they need to go through a lot of trainings. They need to get a lot of degrees before they will be qualified to run. And men wake up and look at themselves every morning and think they can be president, right? So there's that reality. But then if you're a woman of color, if you're an immigrant, if you're somebody who once was undocumented, if you were somebody who was on public benefits, you know, somebody who lived in a trailer park, all of these things, you know, they deepen the sense of imposter syndrome, and then we don't see ourselves in office. So a lot of our training is about affirming that the leaders we are recruiting are already leaders. They already have what it takes to run, um, helping them think about what a winning equation looks like which for us is often reaching into communities that have not been asked for their vote in the past. Um, and then this is a place where I think, you know, our, our work is still growing. That once you get into office, you still have a responsibility to stay connected to the people who elected you in the first place. Right. And so we describe it as helping movement leaders stay connected to the movement, that you're carrying the movement work from outside 
government into government and helping to change the system so that it's more focused on people rather than power, so that it's more focused on transforming our communities rather than on transactional. No, people are disillusioned by politics because there's a reason to be disillusioned by politics. It's, it's lost, many people have lost touch with why they went there in the first place. So the overall organization's goal is to empower new Americans to run, win, and lead. When we say new Americans, we mean people who are first or second generation Americans or who closely identify with the immigrant experience. So there are people who, whose families have been here for three and four generations who still feel like outsiders. Um, we don't get, we don't decide, you know, how you identify, you choose to identify that way. Yeah, I think it's what you're, and a lot of what you're saying, um, how you help, you know, this kind of, some of this coaching to keep um, elected candidates, you know, in, in conversation and in dialogue with their constituents. Um, I'm curious about a little bit of, about that utility. It's, um, and your website does a good job of, of mirroring your own efforts, your own internal efforts to, to do this. You guys talk a lot about feedback, you know, and, and people reaching out and connecting um, across the social and really letting everyone know what you think of, of that whole experience and, and all of your endeavors. And I'm wondering, um, do you have main um, advice that your pieces of advice that you give your elected candidates to keep that, that dialogue going, to stay involved? I think it's one of the core things is to remind them who they're serving and what agendas um, their population and their elected populations have. Do you have like just frequently like the top five that you advise candidates do to stay in dialogue? Um, well, in terms of the candidates, I think the top um, things that we share is that you already have what it takes, that it's your responsibility, that you are, um, it's your responsibility to bring your community along. You know, I say that um, once you knock on the door of a voter, that first time voter can become a long a lifelong voter because of their connection to someone. Um, and, and so, you know, that affirming that they already have what it takes and it's the, the, their responsibility to build a, a bigger tent for democracy, right? To be inclusive rather than exclusive. But in terms of once they're already there, I mean, to be honest, I think the biggest thing that we have been able to provide um, is, is leaning into our convening power, like creating cohorts of people um, circles of women or men um, and uh, gatherings for because there is no experience like being that one single person elected by hundreds and thousands of people um, it is a it is a privilege but it's also a huge responsibility and none of us can fully understand that um, and so they they work with each other to um, to provide support and solidarity um, and showcase policy ideas. Um, you know, I think we do we do leadership development for electeds as that is as important as leadership development for candidates. And I think we we haven't invested as much on the on the. You know, we kind of think, oh, we, you're you're elected and you have so much power. Why should I do anything for you? But it's a very lonely and um, challenging role to have. And so we provide a lot of support. Um, we provide a lot of opportunity for them to connect with each other. Yeah, and it's interesting, um, kind of uh, traversing now into your book, I mean, talking about the lonely and challenging role, you know, your book does a good job at identifying kind of the loneliness involved in pursuing 
um, office of any caliber um, kind of once you get started. And for me, it, it, it echoed a lot of the immigrant experience, you know, of, 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 in, of the language being different or things like that, things that are isolating and even the pursuit of politics being more isolating. And I want to unpack it um, a little bit further than that, if you'll indulge with me. Um, for everyone listening, grabbed from um, the Amazon website uh, regarding people like us, uh, the new wave of candidates knocking at democracy's door. A quick synopsis is um, that you share the stories of diverse um, and persevering range of local and state politicians from across the country who are challenging the status quo, winning against all odds, and leaving pa a path for others to follow in their wake. Um, it's a roadmap for burgeoning democracy that has been um, a long time in the making, inclusive, multiracial, and unstoppable. And um, your book kind of chronicles that through a series of different um, uh, case studies, and, and you talk about the different things. What I liked most about it was um, not just the, the validity of it. For me, when like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and people like that came out, what was most important was like this... Um, Against all odds, you know, I think we've started to give up some of those, the beliefs and maybe some of the hopefulness or I'm not sure, but um, her door to literal door to door campaign that kind of unfolded her overnight apparency when no one knew who she was, you know, with the quick break of that story, all of those things were very much so what I want to believe in as, you know, a democratic American myself as a woman. Um, but the, and so your book does the same thing in this kind of like the, the emphasis on this, you know, the roadmap, these, these actionable like case studies leading to change. And um, but I also really like um, I think you do a really good job of talking about how we always look at the, the positive immigrant um, impact on America when it comes to the economy. You know, so mm -hmm. we need all of that. And you talk about the utility and necessity for democracy, you know, which is is just this whole other lens that I think gets swept away when we talk about immigrants. And I'm hoping you can kind of speak to that with your book. Like if you can unpack, if I've done a poor job of describing it or if I've missed the points, but um, the impetus for you writing it and then how it slowly started to take structure and what you wanted your audience to take from it. Um, yeah, well, first of all, thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about my book. It's been a, a while um, since I've had a chance to do that. Um, and, you know, I, I think in a way, the, for me, the primary motivation for writing the book was to be able to show the hopeful nature of so many of these stories that we often, um, I think, there were a couple of things that happened after 2016. I mean, many things happened after 2016, but one of the, the big things was the sense that um, was a, a greater awareness among a greater number of Americans about the unpredictability of our democracy, right? And that you, regardless of what your political views were, there was a popular vote and then there was, a, there was an electoral college vote, right? And that, that pointed to like a gap, right? Um, and at the same time, in 2016, like the story, my book came out in 2018. The stories I'm talking about are all people who were elected in 2016 or earlier. So there are two things that are happening at the same time. There is an America that we're hearing about um, at the national level, in the national media. And then there's an America that is happening every day, right? People are living side by side 
with people of other backgrounds. They are um, helping each other out. They are believing in their community. Um, I talk about, talk about a, a woman named Carmen Mendez who was elected in a district that is, you know, over 90% white, that like, just like Patricia Kathleen can represent any district in America, Sayu Bojwani can represent any district in America. And I, I really wanted to show that it was possible for us to be leaders anywhere in the country. I also wanted to use stories to unpack some of the systemic challenges that we have in our country. And, you know, it's funny because right, like, for example, we're in a moment where in America, at least a lot of people are talking about Hamilton, right? Um, when you, if you look at Hamilton, you know, our, a lot of the folks in Hamilton were newcomers to America, right? And we, we still had close ties to many other countries, um, different countries than we have close ties, than immigrants have close ties to, but they came and they formed a government in their image. And we have a government in the image of, you know, predominantly white males because it was predominantly white males, even though they were from different parts of the world who formed this government. So if we're gonna get a government that is going to look and work differently, the my favorite example um, is, you know, when I, when I compare how state legislatures meet to the school calendar, right? Like, we have kids, those of us who have kids, you know, are like, why do schools have to be closed for two to three months out of the year? That literally makes no sense anymore. But that was started back in a different time in America, and it continues to be a legacy. Um, it makes no sense for most working parents right now to have their kids out of school for that amount of time. But it's hard for us to reimagine something different after so long. State legislatures were designed at a time when people you know, had plantations or other businesses and at certain periods in the year, they just left and went to state capitals and made laws. Well, that doesn't work anymore, right? So if you wanna run for office um, and your salary is gonna be $20,000 a year and ostensibly it's part-time, but what are you supposed to do the other time in the year to make money because no one wants to hire you because they think, you know, this, anyway, so I don't wanna to get too far into the weeds, but I wanted to, really show how when people like me have difficulty running for office, it's not just because I don't see myself in office. It's because the systems are also stacked against me. Yeah. Um, and so the book tries to do that through stories. Um, I, I wanted to also show, you asked you know, why I wrote it. It was also to show other people like me that it was possible to be you know, a working class Latina and run and win office. Um, and, and I'm, I'm grateful that you saw the hope in it because that was, that was the hope. It was to, to really create um, hopeful stories or showcase hopeful stories. Absolutely. And I think that there's no powerful learning model or as we spoke about before we started, not for me anyway, as a young child and probably still as an older woman. Um, I'm wondering, you mentioned, you know, um, these kind of old paradigms, and I'm, I'm always shocked at how far we've actually been able to come, not changing a lot of the, some of the ridiculously outdated structures of our society, especially as they come to intersections of importance like political um, office. And I'm wondering with the most um, recent advent of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, if you believe that there, will, will that allow, I wonder if there's a, if it's holding space for another dialogue, you know, now that so many things of our economy and our society have changed and um, 
so many people um, have been removed from their office to their home. Do you see an opportunity there for candidates particularly to start discussing things like the nine-month school system and, and things of that nature, or do you think that everyone's still scrambling? Is there something good that would come from this politically in your purview? How do you think that that will play out? I mean, I, first of all, 100% think that there will be a lot of good that comes out of it. I think there's going to be a lot of pain before we get there. There already has been a lot of pain. Um, I talked to someone earlier this morning and I was saying that, you know, we approach so many things with a sense of impossibility rather than a sense of possibility that we're still right now. I think many of us believe that there needs to be a better system in many ways, healthcare, education, workforce, all of that. I, I think even people who I completely disagree with politically probably feel the same way as I do about certain things. But I think we're stuck. I think we're stuck because the familiar has been familiar for so long. What would happen suddenly to teachers unions and the like, right? If it's not just parents might think it's a great idea to have year-round schooling, but what does that mean for people who chose teaching as a profession because they were off in the summers? Um, so, so I think there's a lot of possibility. I think, um, I think we're, we're still scrambling. Um, I think some people are, are thinking about the future. Um, there are very real economic concerns. Um, and we, as a country, have not done well in taking care of our people, right? It's the sort of American way is you take care of yourself. But nobody really does that because there's social security and there's public roads and all of that, but we sort of believe that we take care of ourselves. Um, and so I think one of the things that women in general, but I think, um, you know, well, let's say women in general, I think we, we have a, an approach that's collectivist, right? Like we, we approach a lot of problems um, with a collectivist frame. And I think the whole country will do better when more of us are in office and are and have a collectivist rather than individualistic frame. And I think we're going to get there. It's going to take a while, but I think we'll get there. Yeah, I think so too. And having a seat at the table, you know, as um, Belinda Gates kind of pointed out with women in tech, you know, that yeah. the world's being carved out in tech and I would add politics to that. And, you know, more seats at the table is necessary to change the next generation and the generation afterwards you know, for representation um, across all fronts, but particularly for immigration um, representation, you know, immigrants in office. Um, I'm wondering, when you look forward, it seems like your whole enterprise is kind of built around helping people matriculate these goals for attainability in office and running and candidacy and all of that. You yourself, um, when you look at your endeavors, do you take goals in a one to three year chunk? This is kind of a corporate idea of, you know, looking at everything from finances to just attainability. Um, and if so, what are your goals for the next one to three years? You know, I was definitely, I'm one of those people, I keep a lot of lists, I have a lot of plans. Um, but if I'm being very honest, I think for 2020, um, the biggest change in me um, has been to focus on how I want to be rather than what I want to do. Mm. And I just, I want to say like, to me, it's not who I want to be because I am, I am who I am, you know, but how I want to show up in the world um, and the ways in which I want to live 
and the ways in which I want to be with other people. Um, I, I'm actually in a process of reprogramming myself away from the goals. Um, but really up until I would say probably early last year, I was definitely like, here's my one month goal. Here's my three month goal. Here's my, you know, um, and they, there were personal goals in there too, but, um, but I think very broadly, I'm trying to be, to build in more transitions in my day, mm. um, to have more flow so that I'm not going from one type of activity to another type of activity, um, to create space, um, to be more generous with myself. Um, and, and I think that the goals will come out of that. You know, the, the things that I want to happen will happen because I'm showing up in the way that I want to show up. Yeah. But it takes a lot of reprogramming, by the way. It's just like, that's not that it's easy for me to say it's much harder to do. Yeah. It sounds ideal. I'd like to join you on that. <laughs> sounds wonderful and um, impossible at once, but that's my own um, inability to vision. I love the idea the flow, everything you're talking about. It sounds like it works in unison once you get into that environment. Yeah. It's a self-serving cycle. We're at the end of, and we have the final question, which um, for uh, our faithful audience members is um, someone's, uh, uh, most people's favorite because it kind of wraps up everything that we've been talking about today, Sayu. But I'm wondering if you were in a park or a garden at a safe social distance tomorrow and someone ran up to you as a young woman, female identified or non-binary individual, and they said, listen, we have a, a friend in contact. I'm really glad I found you. I've... Um, I've kind of had this this storied, married past that was based in my love for literature and things of that nature. And um, I've just gotten out of college and I've, I'm working on some things and I'm, I'm thinking about getting into the nonprofit space and, and this advisory space where I can really form something that makes an impact or for a change for immigrants or immigrant identified Americans. And um, someone's told me to find you. What are the top three pieces of advice you would give that individual headed out on their endeavor, knowing what you know now? Um, so I would say first, um, be generous with yourself. Um, second, that, um, this is a marathon, not a sprint. I mean, it took us about 200 years to become this country. It's going to take hopefully not that long, but you know, a, a good chunk of time to reform. Um, and then I think the third thing I would say is to build a sisterhood, a collective. Whatever is possible to do in a collective is going to be um, a lot stronger and more sustainable. Nice. Yeah, I like that. So I've got uh, be generous with yourself. This is a marathon, not a sprint, and um, build a collective for strength and support. These are wonderful. So succinct. It's amazing. So few people can get them in in that amount of words. I love that. Uh, well, say so you were out of time, but I wanted to say I really appreciate you taking the time today. I know that you're wildly busy. Um, I think in COVID, people have found themselves both uh, at once, you know, with a ton of um, space and time on their hands and never bus more busier. So I really appreciate your yeah. time. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Absolutely. And for everyone listening, um, we have been speaking with Sayu Bojwani. Uh, she is an advocate, author, political scientist, founder, and president at the American Leaders. You can find out more on 
www.newamericanleaders.org. You can also jump online and grab her book. Um, I highly recommend it. I think it's a wonderful read for absolutely everyone. It's People Like Us, The New Wave of Candidates Knocking at Democracy's Door. And um, thank you for giving me uh, your time today. I appreciate you. And until we speak again next time, remember to stay safe and always bet on yourself. Sonche. Thank you.